Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, former cabinet minister Peter McKay says the Conservatives missed a breakaway on an open net. Yeah, to use a good Canadian analogy, it was like having a breakaway on an open net and missing the net. <laughs> Michelle Rempel says Justin Trudeau should turn to the Conservatives for help on Western Canada. Obviously, not, like, I don't like Justin Trudeau. I'm sure he doesn't like me, but this isn't about like anymore. This is about getting our communities back to work and having a conversation about how we develop policy that's in the best interest of the entire country. And Quebec will make immigrants pass a values test. I think it's important if somebody wants to come and live in Quebec uh, to know that, for example, women are equal to men in Quebec. Uh, it's important. It's important in certain uh, religion or extremism, uh, people, they don't agree with that. So I want to make sure that they know that. It's Thursday, October 31st. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. Good morning, So what do you make of Peter McKay's comments, the former Conservative Cabinet Minister, former Progressive Party of Canada, Progressive Conservative Party of Canada leader uh, from before the merger with the Canadian Alliance, Peter McKay saying that that, uh, the Conservatives basically missed an open net, a breakaway on an open net. Uh, Is he putting that all on Andrew Scheer or is it kind of a broader comment about the, the Conservative Party just having missed an opportunity? Well, I think, you know, most people will presume he's talking about fear. I mean, that's where the buck stops. And, you know, I think there is a lot of uh, disquiet among progressive conservatives or red Tories, people who are maybe more centrist than Sheer is, that the reason the Conservative Party lost was because it wasn't more centrist. You know, I have some sympathy with that view. If you look at the writings in Ontario and Quebec, there are 199 writings, the Conservative Party lost support in 70% of them compared to 2015. You know, that's not a great result. They, they did pretty well in BC. They did uh, obviously did well in the prairies and they, they, they had a bit of a comeback in Atlantic Canada. But there is a sense that they, they, they missed an opportunity. It's curious to me that McKay's coming out saying it. Now, I think he, I think he does have ambitions. He's still kept himself in the public eye even while he's been in private practice. Uh, I talk to people who say that people close to him have, have talked to them that does seem to be some sort of low-level organization. But I, it seems to me strange that if you are going to go for the leadership, that you would come out so early and so blatantly uh, criticizing the leader. It just it, it makes people who might otherwise be uh, persuaded that Sheer has to go more sympathetic towards him, I would suggest. Uh, now, there may be some factor that he was, he was on the road. He was in Washington when he said it. So yeah. it maybe he just didn't realize he would get such pickup. But, uh, but he should have done, and um, I don't think it does his cause any good. Where do you think Andrew Scheer stands right now? Because there was a Conservative senator yesterday saying he should step down before the end of the year, not even wait for the vote in April at the convention uh, when his leadership will be assessed. Uh, and, and is it going to be a tall order, given all the chatter there's been about Andrew Scheer, for him to get not just the, the minimum required, but a, a healthy mandate from the Conservative membership? Yeah, I think it's good. this is going to be a very tough process. And I think um, if he survives it, he'll be better for it because he's going to get some really scathing criticism. He's going to have to look very closely at it himself and his beliefs and the way he ran that campaign. And it may be that he that 
he doesn't survive it. But if he does, he's going to be in a far better position. Uh, yesterday, I looked at um, Stephen Harper in 2004. Harper lost very similar situation, quite a lot of parallels. And I talked to Tom Flanagan, who was Harper's campaign manager at the time. Harper was far less bullish coming out of that election than Shear has been. He came out and said, I'm going to have to talk to people across the country. I'm going to talk to my wife. Uh, he made it sound very much as if he was contemplating quitting. Uh, and I think he was at one point. I think he was trying to flush out potential rivals, but he was also uh, having a moment of reflection on whether he could do better next time. Now, we know how it turned out. They, they had a very comprehensive review of how things had gone. They identified key weaknesses, uh, such as their advertising not being flexible enough, there not being a, a broad enough appeal in Quebec. And in 2006, they came back with a much better offering. And one one of them likes them were in power for a decade. Now, she has been pointing to that, uh, saying, you know, this is this is just a start. This election, we've we've limited the Liberals to a minority. Uh, we're going to go for majority next time. But Harper had to go through a review as well at the party convention. Uh, he wanted to get 80 percent. He ended up getting 84 percent. So. You know, and these are managed processes. It doesn't just happen by accident. There has to be a, an organised campaign to get you to that level. But at the moment, I wonder whether Shear could get to the level that he needs to get at, which I would suggest is somewhere around 75%. Uh, Joe Clark in 1983 got 66%. He didn't feel that was enough because he wanted to get to 75%. They held a review, a leadership contest, and he lost to Brian Mulroney. So I think this is going to be a very interesting process to watch, and I think that Shear needs to do some hard work and some hard convincing to uh, to get to that three-quarters of the membership level that he needs. All right, let's turn to some other news. Jagmeet Singh has been uh, laying out the conditions for the NDP to support the Liberals on different initiatives, his his goals for, for Parliament this fall and beyond, uh, saying that he wants a universal pharmacare program, also asking the Liberal government to drop the appeal in the Human Rights Tribunal that ordered the federal government to pay billions of dollars in compensation to First Nations children and their families. Uh, what do you think about some of Jagmeet Singh's objectives and, and the challenge that he's putting for the, before the government and how much leverage he has in all of this? Yeah, I think it's good that Jack Harris is back in the caucus because he's who actually knows how Parliament works. And it doesn't work by the fourth party saying, here's what the first legislation we're going to introduce is, uh, which is what Singh said yesterday in the pharmacare thing. You know, they they don't introduce legislation. They may have uh, private members' bills. It may be that he has somebody who's one of his caucus who will introduce it as a private member bill. But his leverage is limited. I mean, this is a party that cannot afford to go to another election. So, so everybody knows that any threats that he makes are hollow. And therefore, what's he going to do? I mean, I think all parties acknowledge that um, an election is not going to happen in the next year or two even. And, you know, I think we, one of my colleagues, Maura Forrest, looked at uh, what happened in the Harper years. And very often the Liberals just abstained. Right. As the Conservatives did in Paul Martin's minority. Uh, they waved through a, a, the Liberal budget in 2005 by abstaining. So, you know, I don't think... I saw... I, I mentioned Jack Harris because I saw that he was uh, sort of cooling the waters a little bit by saying, you know, we're not here to wave red flag or, or draw lines in the sand or anything like that. And I think that that's the right approach because nobody is going to take uh, Singh seriously if he starts talking about bringing down the government. 
All right, let's talk about uh, Michelle Rempel's comments. Uh, the Conservative MP saying that if the Liberals want help in Western Canada, perhaps they should turn to the Tories. I'm not sure how that would work exactly, uh, uh, whether we're talking about an American-style um, uh, uh, cabinet with somebody from across the aisle, which just doesn't seem to make sense in Canada and is probably uh, rarely, if ever, happened. Uh, wh- what do you think she's saying here? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, was she angling for a cabinet position? I don't think so. But, um, you know, the, the, the opposition's job is to oppose and not to help the government out of its difficulties. So, you know, nobody wants a unity crisis. But at the same time, um, you know, the Conservatives have got to be there pointing out where the government went wrong, um, not trying to help the government get its legislation through. So I don't really know what that was about. Okay, and finally, Quebec has introduced or is in the process of introducing a values test for immigrants, uh, uh, something that obviously would have uh, provoked a lot of debate and has in the past. Similar issues have provoked a lot of debate on the national scale, but this is Quebec, which uh, which handles uh, immigration differently from the rest of the country and, and also addresses these matters, as we've seen with Bill 21, uh, differently as well. So uh, how do you think uh, federal parties will respond if they will respond to this development? Well, I don't think you're going to hear a, a peep about it. I mean, uh, uh, Tuna was asked about it on the road. I, I remember somebody asked him a question about this, and he said that this is within Quebec's rights. It's uh, It falls within their jurisdiction as far as their uh, you know joint control over immigration and and. I don't think we're going to hear much about it. I mean, I think it probably is more benign than uh, than it sounded at first shake. I mean, when, when um, Kelly Leach was on a, a values test, it sounded pretty draconian and, and there were going to be people kicked out of the country. And this, as far as I, my reading of it is, it's, you know, we have a citizenship test for right. when you become a Canadian citizen. Um, this seems to be something similar uh, I don't think we're going to see waves of people being who are permanent residents right now being kicked out of Quebec. Uh, I mean, we'll have to see how it plays out. It, it, I think it is more of a ticking a box in an election pledge than actually a substantive measure that's going to make changes in people's lives. Uh, that said, I mean, I, th- I do think that um, the federal government should be pointing out that this is uh, potentially discriminatory, discriminatory and... Um, when allied with Bill 21 is not a direction that uh, you would like to see a country like Canada follow. All right. John, great to have your comments on all these topics. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. Obviously, I don't like Justin Trudeau. I'm sure he doesn't like me, but this isn't about like anymore. This is about getting our communities back to work and having a conversation about how we develop policy that's in the best interest of the entire country. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Edmonton Sun argues, when it comes to Alberta advisors, Justin Trudeau had better pick right. The Sun writes, Calgary Mayor Nahed Nenshi, has been rumored to be eyed for a possible advisory position. Former Premier Alison Redford has suggested she'd be willing to help out. This is a potentially savvy move, which could squelch some anger directed at a government with no representation in Wild Rose country. But even someone with a good resume like Redford could still be seen as potentially polarizing. 
In the Toronto Star, Heather Schofield argues the federal government and the provinces need each other, and they know it. Schofield writes, Without federal-provincial cooperation, provinces don't get the help they need. In an economic downturn, the federal government can't negotiate a national pharmacare program. Provinces won't get the infrastructure funding they have been counting on. Some federal liberals and provincial conservatives are slowly realizing they need to be generous with each other as they question each other and the state of the federation. In the Globe and Mail, John Duffy asks, what kind of minority government will this be? Duffy writes, federal minority parliaments usually come in streaks, with one difficult, awkward minority following another. Two large-scale dynamics suggest themselves as drivers of a potential multi-minority scenario. The first is a profound, environmentally-driven economic restructuring that is commencing worldwide. The other major revolution underway is social and features equality-seeking minorities. Only time will tell if this will lead to a multi-minority period. At Policy Options, Melanie Thomas argues parties are to blame for the slow rise of female MPs. Thomas writes, Political scientists have looked for evidence that voters discriminate against women candidates in Canada, and we just can't find it. This means that while Canadians might still hold some sexist views, that doesn't keep them from voting for women candidates as readily as they vote for men. Instead, research finds not only are parties less likely to nominate women as candidates, they are also more likely to nominate women in seats their party cannot win. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, October 31st. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.